We've been walking through uh, the sections of 1 Corinthians that are a part of the lectionary this time of year, and we have been reflecting on uh, this amazing thing, the body of Christ. We've been reflecting on the fact that Paul is encouraging what is a very uh, diverse and challenging uh, community in the ways in which the implications of both the uh, redemptive work of Christ and uh, the resurrection of Christ impact their life and how they are to put together something completely new and unique in the world. This community of faith designed around and centered around something that is not power, that is not uh, prestige, it's not special uh, gifts, as useful as those gifts may be within the life and body of the church. It's not wealth. It's not beauty, it's not strength, it is something completely different. It is the work of Christ. It is the Spirit of Christ then poured out that binds this new entity together. And last week we read uh, in chapter 12 that it is, it is a body interconnected that can neither say, I don't need a particular part, nor can a part say to the rest of it, I don't need you. The interconnectedness of the body of Christ is fundamental. It is how we stay alive. Alive in the faith. And in real ways, alive in this world. And the more disconnected we are, the less we are enjoying and strengthened by the body of Christ. And at some point, we get to a certain understanding that uh, although exceedingly tempting uh, every week uh, in various ways, uh, not because of anybody here, but just in theory, you know, the whole monastic thing makes a lot more sense. Like the old fathers who would go out and sit on a pillar for the rest of their life alone. Like if you interact with enough human beings, you're like, I understand why they did that. And yet... That is not the existence we are called to. We are called to the richness and the beauty of what it means to be a community of faith, both local parishes and then uh, universally as the Church of Christ. And it is that that binds us together. Uh, it is that beauty. And so it is, it's a brilliant reminder from our brother this morning, the words we choose to interact with those that we are different than in theology or may have questions about. That a body instantly cutting another part of it off might find itself, well, with not many body parts left. But of course, the whole question is why? Why stick a bunch of people together uh, who aren't naturally having an affinity for one another, bind them together by the Holy Spirit? Is it just really a bad science experiment? that God delights to look back on and, 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 and enjoy the, the, the chaos that ensues when you put these people in the same room. Thankfully, no. It is because it is an outworking of His understanding, His ethic, His quality of love and what love really looks like as it is revealed in the divine character and His desire to see it lived out in those He created in his image. And so we go to this amazing passage now of 1 Corinthians 13 and unpack a little bit this morning the ethic of love as it is in large headings hit here in 1 Corinthians 13. Hear now God's word. 
And now I will show a most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and in angels, but have no love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will all be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfection disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we reflect on love, we might think of Your great love. The sacrifice You have given by sending Your Son. How You have glorified Him by sitting Him at the right hand how He will return, and how Your love is joined to us by the gracious presence of the Spirit. We pray, Lord, that in ever deeper and greater ways we might understand the power of love as You have expressed it, as You exist in it, as You created it. And Lord, we pray that whatever is done and said this morning here in this part of the service would be glorifying to you and useful for your people. And whatever is not useful or true, may it be quickly forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. It is interesting that so often the ability or the attempts to unpack the richness and depth of love really leaves us at the doorstep of poets and of musicians. There's a certain way in which Simple prose don't really express the fullness. We have to use colorful language. We have to use uh, analogies. We, we want so much to express the richness of love because it simply doesn't fit into rather staid language that may be useful for putting together a computer, but probably not useful for expressing love, right? There are certain ways in which different registries of speech are useful but oftentimes when it comes to poetry, just as Paul here begins to very quickly move into rhythm and rhyme and imagery, that love is such a reality 
that prose, often, technical language, often does not fully expect or expand or communicate the richness of love. And so I thought about if I, if I and hilariously, because I play probably more word association games, that if somebody were to now say a word, I could come up with a song where that word is used. But as I was working on my sermon and trying to search additional titles, I wanted this idea of having a song for each title, each heading in my sermon, sort of unpack this way of, that love uh, works out. But this morning, barring uh, inspiration or breaking into song, I want us to look at the love songs as they are. There are three kinds of love songs here in 1 Corinthians 13. There is the love that gives the kingdom the quality. The kingdom quality. There is the love that is expressed in the nature of the king. And then there's a love that defines the quality of every age. That is timeless. The timelessness of love. So first... Uh, the kingdom qualities of love. Uh, there is no personal gain in love. This love reminds us that we, uh, we have any gifts for the benefit and for the use of and given in the context of love for the other. Never meant to draw attention or power or prestige to us. And so Paul is in no way trying to diminish the usefulness of the abilities that come from the gift of language. And whether those are languages uh, that humans speak to one another, whether they are heavenly languages, which was a theme in uh, rabbinic, not rabbinic literature, but in, in the intertestamental period about the language of angels and whether or not that is a part of what the gift of tongues is meant to employ. Paul never disparages the gift and encourages its use rightly for the encouragement of the body. Nor is it uh, unhelpful to have the gift of wisdom and knowledge. To be able to discern the times or to be able to speak truth. These are absolutely wonderful and often necessary for God's people. The gift of faith. One that allows us to Literally, believe and see things transformed in this world because of the power of God. But without love, they're means to some other end. Not God's end. They are out of context. They lack the weight of love. The gravity of love that makes it about the other person. That makes it about something outside of ourselves. The building of those things which God views as so important, which is, let us make them community, fellowship, the ease of relationship between others. If I use my gifts of faith or prophecy or tongues or knowledge as a way to distinguish myself in significance from you, then there is no love. If the way that God uses those gifts in love 
allows you to see the uniqueness of me within the body, then we begin to know each other better. We know the unique way that God has created you and me to be in fellowship and why I need to know you and I'm blessed to know you. It gives context to the great spiritual gifts necessary and generously poured out by God upon His people. God delights to do so. He also presses against the spiritual gift of generosity. That if we give everything we have to the poor, if we mark our lives by self-sacrifice, grandiose self-sacrifice, profound self-sacrifice, without love, it carries no weight. It is a passing human endeavor without goodness on any kind of eternal scale. It's not that somebody won't benefit from it. It's not that God can't use it. But interestingly enough, it has no benefit for us. See, this is one of those amazing passages where actually the I matters. Right? Paul actually says I, 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 I. Most of the time when we see you, 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 we think individual, but of course you've heard me say, and other pastors have told you, that's plural. Paul talks a lot in the plural. He gets to this passage, and it is I, 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 because it is profoundly important that we understand that love is not a disembodied idea, but it impacts us directly. And those things which we are called to do, either by our gifting or by our sense of culture and time, of a desire to sacrifice for the other, our desire to use our gifts, if it is not out of God's love for the other, I gain no benefit from it. I will eventually, we know, start to rot from the inside out because no one will fully appreciate my gift of prophecy or tongues or realize how much it took for me to give everything away or the fact that I was willing to dramatically lay my life down for the faith. And if you all don't appreciate it and it wasn't done out of love, then eventually I'll start being bitter against those who don't appreciate what an amazing person I am. Love allows me to give the gift of who I am with really no strings attached, without the expectation that I will be appreciated by those around me. It's not that they shouldn't be appreciated. No part of the body can say to the other part of the body, you're not useful. But that will be between you and God. But if I am acting, you are acting out of love, the love of God given to us then it is less likely that those gifts freely given will end up in our own hearts and souls if underappreciated as the initial infection of our hearts. And so we know that there is a danger in giving and using our gifts outside the context of love because at some point that love that gift will seem unappreciated and we will become embittered. So Paul warns us against the use 
of gifts outside of the context of love. Secondly, love is a quality of the King Himself. And this is where we see in the passage that Paul moves on to the characteristics of love itself. Love is patient. Uh, Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. I read a couple of commentaries who encourage us to then take this idea of the character of love and then put Jesus' name in the spot. And again, we see it in Jesus' ministry so, so often. So it makes sense to be able to say Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not one who acts in a rude and scandalous manner. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. And when we reflect through the character of Jesus as He unpacks and lives out this ethic of love that is the hallmark of God's kingdom, it hits home in a more personal way to recognize that this is who Jesus is. That love was literally embodied perfectly in the person of our Lord and Savior. And that as we look through and pray through the Gospels, as we look through and read through the prophecies fulfilled in Christ, we begin to see a fuller picture of love that certainly a lifetime of sermons could barely begin to unpack. But then the next question is, from a therapeutic, maybe introspective, evaluative standpoint, what happens if we put CVP in there? CVP is patient. CVP is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It does not act in a proud manner. In many ways, that is often true. But in many ways, it might cause us to corporately confess to some degree as Isaiah did. That the ethic and the ethos and the spirit of the church, any particular parish church, as it were to reflect on in what ways it could speak with honesty and strength in putting its own name and its corporate identity and interaction within a community in the place of love. Do we exemplify the ethic and the character and then even more challenging if I put my own name in there? I can't even get very far. EC is patient. EC is kind. So now we're in a time of confession. I was talking to artists about how long potentially working on this sermon the silent confession in this worship service could have been just as I read my name in the midst of that passage. And that's not being self-effacing. You know that's true. It's not what I want to be true. It's not true of me ultimately in who Christ is. That's my assurance. But the reality is this side of glory, as I wrestle with what it means to live out of my new heart, so often things are not the way they are designed to be in my own implication and in, in embodying love. What does it mean to put our own names in that space? Knowing that in Christ it is true of us, even as we wrestle this side with seeing it lived out in our thoughts and in our actions towards ourselves and one another. 
So love is the quality of the king. It is his very nature. Therefore, it is the nature of his kingdom and his people. Finally, love defines the quality of every age. And that's the last paragraph we have there. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will all cease. What is he talking about? We need prophecies. We need Scripture to point us uh, to what happens when we ignore our love for God or we ignore our love for neighbor. We need to know those sorts of things. There is a usefulness to it. But when those prophecies, particularly in the prophecies that led to the birth of Christ, when those are fulfilled, they pass away. There are all of these things that are needful this side of glory in particular ways because of brokenness and sin and the fall that will not be necessary. And yet... Love, which started us. Think about it this way. Classic, traditional, reformed categories, right? If love transcends every age and forms every age, we know it in our Scripture. We know it in our hearts. Creation, let us make them. It is love that begins the very act of creation. God desires to have and to be in fellowship with you and me and all of the brothers and sisters who have gone before and all who will come after us, as long as the Lord shall tarry, let us make them. Why? So we can be in fellowship. So I can walk with them in the cool of the day. So I can share the glory of who I am. They might know me and I might know them. Dear friends, creation was God's love for you because He wanted to know you and be with you. And then his response to the fall is, yes, there are consequences for you. You cannot reject me and expect the rest of creation to be on the same page with you. Work's going to be a little harder. You're going to see the difficulties of trying to be your own God. But let me be clear, at some point I will be bruised before I crush the head of the serpent. I will take it. It will be a seed. See, I love you enough to promise that this has an end time. This is not a permanent state of being. I love you even as you reject me and I will resolve this issue and death and sin will be removed from creation. In the fall, God's response is love. And then in redemption. In redemption. The full restoration of relationship with God. No longer fearing as Adam and Eve did to be in His presence, but longing and desiring to know Him in ever greater degrees because His love draws us in. It transforms us. And it is the way in which we will interact with Him for eternity. Not troubled by my own selfishness or my own manipulative uses of love, but free just to delight and a God whose love created me, restored me, and plans eternity with me. That gives context to every age. It is truly timeless. It is truly transformative. And it is truly the love that the world needs to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Thank you. Thank you that you are love. Lord, that is too big of a topic. But what we do know is that you are faithful in your pursuit of us in love. Lord, may we rest in you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.